All right. Good morning, you guys. So kids, look at those kids. They are ready. So uh, kid, elementary kids, so preschool through fifth grade, you guys are dismissed. And then youth, middle and high schoolers, you guys are dismissed as well with Pastor Chris. One thing I can count on when Pastor Chris does the announcements that the youth group announcements and the married couples announcements will be well covered. So the only thing he sort of forgot to mention was, um, so for this summer, we, uh, we ha we're excited. Uh, we have an expanded kind of a summer reading list. Uh, a lot of you guys picked some books off of our reading list last summer and, uh, and uh, had great response about those. So this year, we've kind of really expanded it. Um, so the, the list itself will come out this Wednesday in the e-bulletin. And there will be links where you can get the books uh, I'll have one of each book here next week that you can have a look at. We can place some orders uh, for the books if you want, or you can get them on Amazon, or you can get them as audio books or however you prefer to do it. Um, and we'll talk about this a little more next week, but the idea behind the summer reading list uh, isn't just to get you reading, but it's to get you reading with somebody else. So uh, the idea is look at the reading list, find a book that interests you, talk to a buddy, talk to a group of buddies, ladies, whatever it is, um, and decide maybe on a book that you want to go through together, and then decide how you want to get together to go through it. Maybe you read the whole book and just get together one time you know, for dinner at the end of the summer to talk through it. Maybe you want to get together weekly, um, or maybe it's just one person that you want to have coffee with each week and kind of talk about your progress through the book. But it's just a way to get us reading and to get us talking about the things that we're reading and the things that the Lord uh, is doing. So again, uh, look forward to that list coming out this uh, Wednesday. I'm excited. There's some new titles on there. Uh, a lot that I've personally read, some that I'm excited to read uh, along with everybody else this summer. Um, it certainly is not like read all the books. It's just read one of the books or a couple of the books uh, as many of the books as you'd like to read. So if you're not already on the, um, the email list to get that Wednesday midweek email that comes out, just shoot us a quick email at info at ccmv.org and we'll put you on the list so you'll have that, um, uh, that the list that'll come out Wednesday. Of course, Memorial Day weekend this weekend, uh, just such an important weekend, an important day tomorrow, of course, just to remember and really to honor uh, those who gave their lives so that we could enjoy ours, amen, so that we could enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy here. Um, it's just, you know, important, I think, each year just to take that time. So I'll encourage you to do that uh, tomorrow and um, prayerfully, thankfully, take some time just to remember all of those. Uh, you probably have family members or, or people that you know who, uh, who you can honor on Memorial Day as well as those so many that we don't, of course. Uh, Memorial Day is also a great day to get out of the Bay Area. So we want to have a moment of prayer for all of those backsliders in our church who've... <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. Did I say that out loud? No, I didn't mean that out loud. We want to really pray for all those in our church family who are traveling this weekend and just that God would bless them. So uh, we got a great text this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 looking at the first uh, 10 verses, and I think that was all the 
stuff I needed to say beforehand. But let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless uh, our time in the word today. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather. Lord, we do pray for all those in our church family who are traveling this weekend. Lord, pray that you'd bless them, keep them safe, um, bring them back to us, Lord. And we, uh, we pray on this Memorial Day weekend, Lord, we are so thankful for those who um, just sacrificed their own lives, Lord, so that we could uh, just enjoy all the freedoms that we enjoy and the way of life that we enjoy here in our country. And so uh, we pray your blessing on their families, Lord, as they remember them and, and still deal with the loss. Um, Lord, but we are, we are so thankful. And so we pray this morning, Lord, as we continue, Lord, that you would continue to bless our time as we go to your word. Lord, we pray for open ears and hearts to hear what your spirit would speak to us this morning, Lord, through this text, and we ask your blessing on it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, if you need a Bible uh, this morning, raise your hand and we'll get one into your hands, or you can use a Bible uh, that's on your phone. I'll be teaching out of the New King James Version if you want to follow along uh, in that translation or whatever translation is good for you. So again, we're just picking back up where we left off as we're studying straight through Mark's account of the life and the earthly ministry of Jesus. And we remember uh, as we left off the, the boys in Jesus right at the end of our text last time, uh, they were over in what's called the Decapolis. Remember, that's that area to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. At this point, they're outside of the borders of Israel proper. They're in Gentile territory. Remember, we said it was kind of a roam away from Rome, this area where they were. And we remember they had just come from up north, right? They were 50 miles deep up into the north in Gentile territory again. And in both of these places, we've seen Jesus had performed these miraculous healings. There was first, there was that deliverance of that uh, demon-possessed girl. And then last time, the healing of that deaf and mute man in what was a very unorthodox way that Jesus chose to do that. But this was this man, we remember that Jesus had called out from amongst that multitude of people that had assembled there as soon as Jesus had arrived into the region. And we've referenced, remember it was Matthew who told us that a great multitudes came to Jesus, having with them the lame and blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. So again, not unlike in Israel, but we have these huge crowds of people who'd heard about the work of Jesus. They'd heard about the power of Jesus, most likely from the powerful testimony of just that one man. We remember the demoniac man, right? That man whom Jesus had delivered from a legion of demons. And now we see as a result, we have this multitude of people that are pressing into Jesus, just really hungry for what it is that only he could provide to them. And now as we jump into to verse 1 of chapter 8 of Mark's account, what we see is that this wasn't all that the multitude was hungry for. Look what it says in verse 1. It says that in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him 
and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Now this scene is starting to sound just a bit familiar, right? It's actually a, a very familiar scene. We have this multitude that's there with Jesus. Mark tells us it's a great multitude that's there with Jesus. We know they're hungry because they haven't eaten anything. And they're out here, we're going to learn in the very next verse, they're out here in the wilderness. Once again, they're out here in the middle of nowhere. And if you look down at your Bible, at the beginning here of Mark chapter 8, the heading for this particular section probably is called something very clever like the feeding of the 4,000 which is actually what we are also going to very cleverly title this message today. But the feeding of the 4,000 is sounding an awful lot like the feeding of the 5,000, which we just looked at back in Mark chapter 6, and we said was recorded in each of the four different gospel accounts. And these events admittedly do sound so very familiar that many have come to the conclusion especially those people who are looking to the Bible and trying to find errors in the Bible, but even many students of the Bible have come to believe that these two events are actually one event, the same event, just with some differences in the details. And one of the main reasons that they give for that position is what we're going to read in the very next verse. It's the reaction of the disciples as Jesus expresses his concern. So just look down in verse 4. Jesus says, look, here's this multitude, and they're hungry. And it says in verse 4, then his disciples answered him, well, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now, again, this sounds really familiar. Here are the 12 disciples, like, completely drawing a blank. Here's this very familiar scene, and yet this very inconceivable response from these guys. It's almost as though the feeding of the 5,000 had never happened just a couple months before this time. And again, this reaction of the disciples is so inconceivable that it leads some people to the conclusion that it hadn't, right? That we're talking about the very same event, which I'm here to tell you this morning, could not be further from the real truth. Okay, these are two completely different accounts of two separate and different events, which are very similar but very, very different all at the same time. There's a number of different lessons for us to take from each one of these as we go, but the first of those lessons I think we just saw as we see the reaction of the disciples. And I think it kind of prompts what, what I hope is a thoughtful question for each of us on a Sunday morning, is how many of us in our own Christian experience, and I guess maybe I should just speak for myself, 
But how many of us have not had this exact same experience like the disciples here, where we come up to some gigantic trial in our lives, right? Or we come up to, to something that God is calling us to do, something that we have no ability to do in our own strength. Here we are, we're facing this situation, and the very first thing that we do is we start to act like we have never, ever been here in our history with the Lord, when the truth is that indeed we've been exactly here before. If not at least once, probably multiple times before. So this inconceivable response from the disciples, it's not an indication that this is something that they haven't experienced. I think it simply illustrates instead that this is something that does indeed happen to each and every one of us. This isn't really such a very inconceivable response. Unfortunately, it is more so a very familiar inconceivable response. And I, and I think it's one of the great lessons of this passage. I think it's one of, the, one of the real reasons, certainly on a personal and a devotional and an applicational kind of level, why in the world this account would be included yet again in the scriptures. And it's to remind us and to teach us this important lesson about how often it is that we can face things in our Christian lives that we have already faced earlier in our Christian life, things that we have lived through and things that we've navigated by the grace of God, and yet we come up against that very same thing and we act like we've never seen it before, like we have no experience with God in, a, in our history, in a trial like this. And I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, I'll just simply confess to you that I have found myself here in this place many more times than I care to admit. And it's something that I do not like at all about myself, right? But so often there's a great challenge that I find in front of me and my very first inclination is to respond to it like this is the very first time. And then what has to happen is we're just gonna see Jesus do this with the disciples, but what Jesus needs to do with me and maybe with you is he just kinda needs to pull back a little bit and then remind me of this rich history that I have with him. And it's almost as though Jesus sort of stops and he says, hey, haven't we been here before, Bill, right? Pastor Bill, right? And did I not take care of you in this exact similar situation? And have I not done it over and over and over again in the past? And what did we do, right? And what was it that happened then? Because what I was to you then in that circumstance, Jesus says, I'm going to be to you again in this one. And I will be very happy, right, to be happily in heaven one day and to be completely done with that whole faithless side of myself. And, and I believe I'm not alone when I say that within this room. Again, there's no need for you to raise your hands because I'm actually just getting the names right now. So I'll call them out. And if that's you, I just want you to... No, I wouldn't do that, would I? I might but I, I'm not going to do it today. 
But my point is, right, we can all recognize that this is the case. And stop and think about your Christian life, right? If you've walked with the Lord for any number of years or even just a significant amount of time, I mean, realistically, what percentage of the trials that we face in our Christian life are absolutely brand new to us? Right? Where we come up against something and this is the very first time we have ever faced anything like this before. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen because absolutely it does happen all the time. But all I'm asking is what percentage, right? Because the truth is that the overwhelming majority of the things that we face and the majority of all the possible circumstances in our lives are circumstances that we have faced over and over again in our Christian history where what we need to do is simply fall back upon that wonderful history that we have with God. Even though the, the details of this particular challenge that's right in front of us, or we're going to see that's in front of the disciples, the details may be different, but the faithfulness of Jesus is always the same. All right, so the feeding of the 4,000 here and the feeding of the 5,000 there are two entirely different miracles of a similar kind that Jesus accomplished. And of course, both of them speak to us similarly about that tendency that we have to forget about the single great resource, I mean the single greatest resource that we have as a Christian in any impossible situation that we find ourselves. It's never our own resources, but that single greatest resource that we have is the Lord Jesus who is with us. Now, as I said, this miracle that we're studying this morning has some other very important lessons, and they're all nestled within these differences in these details. Now, the first difference that we see that's most obvious well, before we said there was the feeding of the 5,000 men, which Matthew told us didn't even include the women and children. Here we have what Mark says later in verse 9, he tells us there were about 4,000. And again, Matthew tells us that number didn't include the women and the children. Now, remember in the first feeding of the 5,000, we said that there may well have been fifteen to 20,000 people there. Right, which we said was about the capacity of the San Jose Arena for a Sharks game. Now, if we kind of use those same estimates, this feeding here, we're probably talking about 12 to 15,000, which just happens to be, they say, the capacity of that same arena for a tennis event. Right? So, not only though is the number a completely different one, but the location is completely different. And this is a very important difference. So pay attention if I've already lost you, okay? The feeding of the 5,000, remember we said that happened at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, not that far from Capernaum, which was the base of Jesus' operation there. So it would have involved a multitude which was made up primarily of Jews. This feeding... This miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, where are we at this point? Well, we're in the Decapolis. We're in that area there of those 10 
Gentile, Greco-Roman kinds of cities on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which would make this multitude here primarily made up of, you guessed it, Gentiles. Now, this difference alone is hugely significant. This is Gentile territory. And the Jews hated the Gentiles. And when we use that word hate, we actually mean hate. A Jewish man at that time woke up and prayed every day, thank God I'm not a Gentile. Okay? When the Jews returned from having to pass through any kind of adjacent Gentile territory and come back into the land of Israel, they would shake the dust off of their feet because they didn't want to bring Gentile dust in to pollute the Holy Land. When they went to the marketplaces, they would pull in their robes for fear that their robe might brush up against a Gentile by accident. Of course, you read the Old Testament, you know that much of the history of the Jews is them suffering at the hands of the Gentile nations that were around them. Most of the time, it was because the Lord was using those nations to chasten Israel because of her disobedience, but it had all left a pretty, some pretty bad blood to be sure. The, the Gentile nations that surrounded them, by and large, were filled with some pretty despicable pagan people who were engaged in some extremely despicable pagan practices. I mean, we are talking about rampant sexual immorality, wicked, wicked idolatry, child sacrifices, sorcery, you name it, they were doing it. And so the rabbis had come to just teach that the Gentiles as a people were created only to be fuel for the fires of hell. So these were, this was this despicable people of the Gentiles. The Jews hated the Gentiles, possibly for good reason. And yet here, the Jewish Messiah, right? Here's Jesus right there in the middle of this Gentile territory. And he is ministering and he's healing and he's teaching and he's extending grace and he is showing mercy to this Gentile multitude. And now he suggests to his boys that they need to feed them. Now some have proposed that this is in part particularly why the disciples probably looked at Jesus like he had two heads. Notice the way Mark records the disciples' response. Look back at verse 4. They say, how can one satisfy these people with bread? In the sense that, look, Jesus, we can understand how you would feed that other multitude of our fellow Jews, but these people? But here's what they had clearly missed. They had missed the part where Jesus had said even before that, look at verse two again with me. What did Jesus say? He said, I have compassion on this multitude. And put a star by it because that is a significant statement. And the, and the sense is, and the way Mark records it for us here, it's more than just Jesus saying, look, my heart goes out to them. But the, the use of that Greek word compassion it means to really feel something 
like in your intestines, to feel something in the deepest part of your being. What Jesus was saying, he says, look, I feel for these people in my guts. He's moved down in his guts, literally in his bowels, to the point where he needed to act on what he was feeling, right? So compassion is sort of like empathy that needs to help. So here he's looking at this crowd who's been following after him for three days, right? They have been fasting now for three days. Remember when he fed the last multitude, the other multitude of the Jews, it was the very same day that they had come to him. Those people had probably only missed lunch. Right? None of them were in danger of fainting or starving. They weren't fasting. And yet this multitude of these Gentiles, they were so desperate for spiritual truth. They were so desperate to hear from him. They had shown that they would rather be with him and hear from him even than Eat. It's like Job said that I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And so this is a remarkable thing that's taking place here in the hearts and the lives of these people. And Jesus sees it and he responds with compassion toward them because of it. And one of the really remarkable things about what Jesus is saying here is that this is the only time where Jesus uses this word compassion about himself. We've been told up to this point that Jesus had compassion or that he was moved with compassion. But this is the only place you find Jesus saying that I have compassion or that I am feeling this right now. It's right here in our text. Quickly, remember back just in chapter one of Mark's account, remember the leper came to Jesus. Luke told us that the man was so full of leprosy. So this is a man who's in the last stages, no doubt, right? He's lost appendages. He can probably barely walk. He's at death's door as a result of this awful disease. And remember, he falls down in front of Jesus, begs Jesus to cleanse him. And Mark tells us that Jesus was moved by compassion, and that he cleansed him. Now, the second time that we hear this, it was for the demoniac man. Remember in chapter 5, again, he's got this legion of demons, and the text describes that he's out there gouging himself, and he's breaking chains, and he's screaming, tormented all night, living out there in the tombs, and he comes there to Jesus, and Jesus delivers him from that legion of demons and then tells him, go home to your friends, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And the next time we see it used was in Mark 6, just before he fed the multitude the last time. And we remember, it says that Jesus, when he came out, he saw this great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Now, the Bible repeatedly tells us that God is a compassionate God. But in the person of Jesus, it shows us. 
Jesus' entire ministry could almost be summed up in this one word, compassion. He felt compassion for those who were suffering physically, but most of all, he felt it for those who were suffering spiritually. And every time that Jesus comes in and is confronted with the tragic effects of sin and the way that it has so impacted the human condition, you know, you see the suffering and the isolation and the emptiness and the waywardness that it had created amongst God's people, right? Each different time we told that, we're told that he was moved with compassion, but now here, Jesus makes this incredibly striking statement to his disciples saying that he was moved in this very same way as he looked at this multitude of Gentiles. Because the thing that the disciples have to see and that they have to start to understand is that Jesus is just as compassionate to the despised, hated Gentile world as he was to the beloved and chosen Jews. So there's this incredible compassion of Jesus on even this despicable people of the Gentiles. Because they're a multitude who were desperately hungry for spiritual truth and starving for a word from heaven. And they had been completely rejected by the religious establishment of the day. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I can feel this in my guts. My gut is churning for them. I have compassion on them because they're starving both physically and they're starving spiritually because I love even these unlovable people. And this is exactly why I think that we see that this particular miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, is specifically included only here in Mark and in Matthew's accounts. Now, Matthew would have wanted to include it so that he could kind of stick his finger, so to speak, right in the eye of the religious hypocrites of Israel and to say, look, the real Messiah, he took the time to feed the Gentiles too. But Mark, Mark would have included it especially because his primary audience specifically was who? It was the Romans, right? And the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate specifically to them that they were loved. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ was for them. They needed to know, the Romans needed to know, just as the disciples needed to learn, that Jesus had come with this message of healing and of reconciliation and he had crossed over into their world with it as well. The Gentiles needed to know that Jesus saw them in their hunger and their weariness and their desperation and their weakness and that he wanted to meet their needs just like he wanted to meet the needs of the Jews and that he wanted to do it in spite of their great immorality and their terrible idolatry and their wickedness and their abominations that so saturated their entire culture and Jesus still loves even the unlovable and we know that that is true because he loved even me right and he loved even you
Right? He loves us because of who he is, right? Not at all because of who we are. There's nothing in us that, that demands his love, right? He loves us because of his righteousness and because of his holiness and because of his purity and because of his care and his deep concern for those who are broken and diseased and despised and who are lonely and isolated and needy because as human beings, right, it says in Genesis that we were all made in his image according to his likeness. Right? So we are image bearers of God himself. And as image bearers, none of us were ever supposed to experience any of these things. So when Jesus sees an image bearer, when he sees a human being, any human being that was created in his beautiful image and in his likeness, and when he sees us sorrowing and broken and suicidal, lonely, forsaken, betrayed, go down the list, right? When he sees a human being behaving and acting or driven into a place like that that they should never be, there's something deep inside of him that churns because he understands what the original intent was. He understands the potential for what we were created to be, right? The Bible says that he loves us with an everlasting love. In Lamentations, it says that his compassions fail not, that they are new every morning. And that love is still as consistent to the rejected and the despised in the Gentile world as it ever was to his chosen people, the Jews. And, and I go into this because I think that there's a great warning here for us as the church because we, the church, are in great danger of falling into the very same trap that the Jews had fallen into because Jesus still loves all the unlovable. We just forgot that we were once part of that group, Right? But in Romans 5, it says that God demonstrated his love towards us in that what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I want you to take a moment and just think about the most despised people in our culture today. Whoever that is to you, drug addicts, drug dealers, drug traffickers, sex offenders, child abusers, religious fanatics, terrorists, whoever it is that's on that list for you, people that you just look at and you believe that those people probably are simply fuel for the fires of hell because of something that they have done or something that they're still doing or something that they believe in. And then we need to understand that Jesus still has compassion for them. That when Jesus looks at those people, his guts churn as he sees them in their pain. And so Lord help us as his church to really see people and to see all people the way that Jesus sees people, to have that same sort of compassionate response toward them, not because necessarily they deserve it, but precisely because they don't deserve it. 
right? And this is that supernatural work that only the Holy Spirit can do in our hearts. This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Romans about the love of God that has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So this is what the disciples are being confronted with. This is Jesus taking their training or sort of pushing their preparation right to the next level. Because what we have in our text today, this is the feeding of the multitude graduate level studies, right? This is like the graduate level course. Because notice next, as Jesus gently revisits this whole situation with the disciples, he's going to walk them through the whole process yet again. But this time he's going to do it in a slightly different way. So here are the disciples faced with the feeding of the multitude of these people in this wilderness place. They have no resources. And in verse 5, Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So Jesus says here, look, not only am I going to provide for this people, he says, but I'm going to do it from what you already have. Remember in the last feeding of the 5,000, we remember the disciples went around and they found the food in the midst of the multitude. They actually took it away from some poor kid who had brought a sack lunch. Right? This time, Jesus is showing them that they themselves already have all the bread that this people or any people could ever need because what they have is him. What they have is the gospel. Now Mark doesn't cover it in his account, but it was just after the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus declared in the wake of that miracle, right? That miracle was the backdrop for when Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never first thirst. That was the first of the seven great I am statements that Jesus would make. And now what I believe Jesus is doing here is he's starting to connect the dots for his disciples to show them that what they have to offer the hungry and what they have to offer the desperate and the hurting and the broken and the weary what they have to offer all of them is him is nothing less than the bread of life and I think that so often that the Lord Jesus would ask us the very same thing when, it, when we're confronted with a situation of desperate need that's right in front of us, right? We're faced with some sort of situation that far surpasses any resources that we have in and of ourselves. We can't fix the problem. We can't provide satisfaction. We can't address these deep needs, especially the deep spiritual and emotional needs of the people who are around us. And that's the point I think that Jesus just stops and he says, okay, well, what do you have? And we say, well, I have you, Lord. And he says, well, okay, then let's start with that. I can work with that because that's enough. He says, that's more than sufficient he says, you already have everything that you need. Because notice how many loaves the disciples had. What does it say there? They had seven. 
Now, the number seven, you Bible students know, when you see the number seven in the scriptures, it usually represents perfection or completion or it represents rest or it represents fulfillment, right? Genesis chapter one, God rested on the seventh day because the creation was completely complete. In Exodus chapter 22, it said that animals had to be at least seven days old before they could be used as a sacrifice. Joshua chapter six, we know this, the Israelites marched in circles all around Jericho for seven days straight. On the seventh day, they did it seven different times before seven priests blew seven trumpets before the walls came tumbling down. 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman the leper had to bathe in the Jordan River how many times? Seven times before his cleansing was complete. There were seven pairs of each clean animal that were brought into the ark in Genesis chapter 7. There were seven stems on the tabernacle's lampstand in Exodus 25. There are seven prophetic attributes of the Messiah in Isaiah 11. Seven different signs we just said in the gospel according to John. Seven unique I am statements. Seven things listed that the Lord hates in Proverbs 8. Seven parables in Matthew 13. Seven woes in Matthew 23. There are 70 weeks in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, and there are 70 years in the Babylonian captivity. Should I go on? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? So these probably are all just there by coincidence, right? Or the number seven is a significant number in the scriptures which represents to us the perfection of heaven or the completion of a divine plan. And so these seven loaves here as a picture of Jesus, the bread of life, to satisfy the needs of this multitude before them are a reminder to us that Jesus is totally sufficient. He's completely complete to meet each and every human need. We went through it not that long ago. Right, but remember when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians about Jesus, he said this in Colossians chapter 1, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation, that by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he may have the preeminence. It says, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And then in chapter 2, Paul says that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And read the next part with me. And it says, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Folks, that is who we are sharing with the world. That is the gospel right there. And even though we are not sufficient to meet any of these needs that are all around us, Jesus is more than completely sufficient to meet the needs of every hungry person who comes to him for the bread of life. And we have him to share with them so he can meet their needs. 
And so he can do it just in the way that he's done it time and time again in our own experience as we've watched him do so many times. Look at verse 6. He goes on. It says that he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. So just exactly like we saw last time, here's the seating of the multitude so that they could receive the miracle. I love this because Jesus wasn't offering takeaway. Right? He's not doing like come up to the kiosk and I'm going to send your food away at the counter. He was setting up for a full seated meal. But I think this is interesting. Remember last time in Mark 6 it said that all sat down in groups on the green grass. When they were over there in Israel. This time it just says that they sat on the ground. Why? Because this is the wilderness. This is desert. This is that desolation, if you will, of the Gentile world. They're outside of the green promises of the word of God. But even here in this desolate place, we see that Jesus can satisfy. It says he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. So... Again, just like we saw it before, there's the seating of the people, there's the blessing of the miracle, right, as Jesus is acknowledging for the people that what was happening was happening directly from heaven. There's the involvement of the disciples in the distribution of the miracle, and then there's this miraculous act of creation itself right in the hands of Jesus as he was multiplying what they had started with. Again, it's such a wonderfully beautiful picture of our work today as we go out to share the gospel, right? The Lord Jesus does what only he can do, but he allows us to partner with him to do what we're capable of doing ourselves, right? We're just the distributors. He's the manufacturer. And then Mark includes this interesting detail. It's almost out of sequence. Look at verse 7. It says, they also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So in this case, these few small fish that the disciples had, they're sort of included and they're sort of served as almost a separate course, right, with a, a different blessing. And I don't think that this was kind of a culinary decision, this wasn't like Martha Stewart, multiple course, you know, like you're sitting down, or they weren't trying to keep their carbs separate from their proteins on some crazy eating plan. But this detail has led some to wonder, why did the disciples not mention the fish when Jesus first asked how many loaves they had? Now, surely they knew what he was asking. Right? He was asking what food they had to feed this multitude. So why didn't the disciples mention this at first? Well, it's at least worth considering that the doubting disciples has, had held back their few fish until they started to see the way the bread was being multiplied. Now, I'm suggesting this only because we're all guilty of the same thing. Right? If we're honest, here's all I have, Lord. I want you to use it for your glory, right? Oh, these few fish? <laughs> well, those, yeah. I just kind of thought I might need to hold those back in case I needed them later for myself. 
So I'm not going to belabor this point, but just a quick word of encouragement to any of us who might need it this morning. Let's walk in faith and trust the Lord really with everything that we have. Right? Entrust to him all of our resources, right? All of our material, emotional, financial resources, right? And then just trust that that multiplication will take place in his hands. And think about this. He can only multiply it if we put it in his hands. Amen? But as we do that, as we give it to him, he's going to do what only he can do. And we will see and we'll be reminded yet again, there is always more than enough. Look at verse 8. It says, So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. So not one person of this probably 12 to 15,000 people who were there that day, not one of them left hungry that day because Jesus satisfies. He always satisfies. And just as we saw in the last feeding of the last multitude, there was plenty left over. In this case, Mark says, there were seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now, we remember last time, Mark told us specifically that they took up 12 baskets full of fragments. And at first read, this might seem like there was a little less left over this time around. And yet what we need to understand here is that these are two different baskets we're talking about here in the two different passages. Remember last time we pointed out specifically that the Greek word that Mark used for baskets back in chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000, it was a little kind of basket, like a, like a hand basket that the Jews would use, kind of like a, a personal-sized, almost like a lunch pail kind of a basket. And we saw that there were exactly 12 of them left over, one for each of the disciples, a beautiful picture of the fact that there was enough, right? There was a special portion, a specific provision of personal blessing for each one of those guys, even after their long day of ministry there and them participating with what it was that Jesus had done. In the very same way that those of us who serve the Lord, we are blessed as we serve and as we minister to people because the Lord always provides for his servants. And yet now these baskets we see here, these are different baskets. It's a different word altogether. The translators translate it as large baskets because they were large baskets. It comes from a different Greek word for a different basket, a bigger basket than the Gentiles used, which make the bigger basket, sorry, that the Gentiles used, which makes sense because here we are over in Gentile territory. Now, how big were these baskets? Well, these were the same baskets that's mentioned in Acts chapter 9 that they put the apostle Paul in so they could lower him down out of the city wall when they smuggled him out of Damascus. You remember that story? You remember that situation? Paul was in, he was in a very difficult point in his ministry. We might even say at that time that Paul was kind of a basket case. Basket case. You guys see what I did there? Because he was in a basket. Paul was in a basket, right? So we're talking about a basket that is big enough to put 
a person in. A basket that is plentiful and a basket that would carry an abundant portion of something. Again, such a beautiful picture of the abundant provision of the gospel message of the bread of life. And how many baskets are there? Would you look at that? There are seven. So there are seven Gentile baskets filled with the bread of the gospel for the Gentile world at the end of this miracle. Probably just a coincidence, but I don't think so. And here's something really interesting. Because the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he will write epistles to exactly seven Gentile churches. The Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and then to the Thessalonians. So seven Gentile churches will receive letters from the Apostle Paul. And then there are also exactly seven churches, seven Gentile churches, who will also get specific letters sent to them, but this time by the Lord Jesus himself. Right, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches. Right, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then finally to Laodicea. So seven different letters to seven Gentile churches. So this miracle here of the feeding of the 4,000 is far from simply being the feeding of the 5,000 repeated for us with some different details. But it is nothing less than a beautiful and a prophetic picture and a declaration both to those disciples and to the world that the gospel was to be for the entire world. And in fact, I think we could say rightly that the feeding of the multitude of the 5,000 that we saw in Mark 6, right, and in every other gospel, that pictures the coming of the bread of life to the Jews first, right? Just like the promises were given first to them when the covenant was established with them way, way back in the days of Abraham. But then we have this event here with the feeding of this multitude, right, recorded only in Mark and in Matthew for the reasons we talked about, but it pictures the coming of the Lord Jesus as the bread of life would be made available to the Gentiles. So this is the bread of life now for everyone. So when we put these two miracles together, we see this beautiful gospel truth that Jesus came to satisfy the hunger of Jew and Gentiles alike. And that in him, we see this God who opens his hand and opens his heart and has compassion and satisfies the desire of every living person, both the lovable and the unlovable. Look at our very last verse with me. It says at the end of verse 9 that he sent them away and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So Jesus ends now his ministry there to the Gentiles in the Decapolis. He heads with the boys, right? They board the boat. They head back across the Sea of Galilee to the west side, right? This region of Dalmanutha. It's right near Tiberias, back on the western side. And at this point, no doubt, 
the disciples' minds were reeling at what had just happened. They had just witnessed the compassion of Jesus in a way that they could have never imagined, right? A leprous man needing cleansing physically, a, a demoniac needing deliverance spiritually, even a multitude of Jews who were like sheep without a shepherd. Well, they could wrap their minds around all of that. But this multitude of despicable Gentiles, and again, there's important lessons here, I think, for us as believers about how we look at those around us. But as we finish up today, I think there's an also a very important encouragement here as, you know, for us as believers, but this time about the way that we each look when we look inside of us. Because I think that it's so easy in theory to accept the fact that God is compassionate towards other people, but maybe we have trouble accepting the fact that he also has that same heart of compassion, that churning compassion towards us. To really truly accept the fact that when Jesus sees us, he sees us, maybe we're suffering through some painful situation, maybe we're even suffering as the result of our own sin, and yet when he sees that, there's something that churns within him, that he feels that deep in his gut because the Lord Jesus always has compassion on those who are weary and are following after him, right? Is there anybody here that maybe feels weary trying to follow after the Lord Jesus in this world? He knows that and he sees you and he has compassion for you. He sees that you're weary. He sees that you haven't eaten. He sees that you've been sacrificing things so that you could be with him. He sees the way you've, you've gone way beyond your comfort zone, right? You haven't rested. You haven't slept because you've been following after him. And he has compassion on you. And he wants to feed you. And he wants to take care of you and he wants to minister to you and he wants to strengthen you so that then you can go out and feed others that same wonderful bread that he fed you. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this text, Lord, and we thank you as we do each and every week, Lord. We thank you for the great, great encouragement that it brings to us. Thank you for your great compassion towards us, Lord, and your love for us, Lord, that though yet when we were still sinners, Lord, that you died for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help to make those truths alive and fresh in our hearts this morning, Lord, and may they impact everything that we do, Lord. And we pray that we would begin to see people the way that you see people, Lord, and to love them the way that you love them, Lord, and to readily offer that bread of life that we have, Lord, to feed and to nourish and to strengthen them. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen.